Well, uh, tonight we'll continue our series, learning about the sacred pathways of engaging with God. And as mentioned at a previous week, uh, the sacred pathways are nine ways that author Gary Thomas has written a book, and he's written this book about these nine ways as ways uh, that we connect with God. And Gary, he is a prolific author. In fact, he has written uh, one of the best books that I've ever read. I saw Michelle Brown in here. She gave me the book Sacred Marriage and said, you got to read this. And I don't know if she had insight into my marriage or what, but I read it and uh, it, is, it is probably one of the best books I've ever read on marriage. So for those of you who are married, uh, based on Michelle's recommendation I, and mine as well, I encourage you to read it. Uh, it's called Sacred Marriage. But tonight, uh, I will borrow heavily uh, from his book on the sacred pathways as I share with you tonight. A, a couple of Wednesdays ago, Pastor Brent, he actually came to, uh, to our, our weekly staff chapel. And that takes place every Wednesday morning from 8.30 to 9.30. And what it is, it's a time for our entire Timberline Church staff to come together and just really be encouraged through information and inspiration. But two weeks ago, Pastor Brent came in. He shared on uh, the sacred pathways. And then last Wednesday morning during chapel time, we actually gave our church staff uh, that morning off just so that they could go and explore which pathway kind of resonated with them. So really kind of a cool thing. Not only are you guys kind of journeying through this, uh, but our church staff is walking through it as well. So that's kind of cool. Um, we, I'm sure that you have walked walk through these handouts every week. And hopefully you've actually uh, answered the questions in them. So last week during my quiet time, I took part in this and I found out that uh, I had two that tied for first. So remember, if anything scores higher than 15, that, that will kind of tell you that's probably how you're uniquely uh, connected to God. But I scored high uh, as an intellectual, which was a total shock to my wife. I mean, she was, no way. No, you? <laughs> but I actually scored a 26 uh, as an intellectual. And then uh, I scored as a 26, I scored a 26 as an ascetic as well. So those tied for first. Uh, any intellectuals? Any one scored high as an intellectual? Okay. Okay, I know Pastor Brent, he's an intellectual as well. Uh, Sensates uh, was close behind, I scored a 23. So anyway, th this is really a fun exercise, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this series because it helps me, and I hope that it's helped you as well, to kind of understand how you and I are uniquely created, we know that from the scriptures, but in our uniqueness, there is also unique ways that you and I can connect with God. I mean, that just makes sense, right? It just makes sense. Ways that resonate within each one of us uh, deeply. 
So tonight, we'll learn about two pathways of connecting and worshiping God. We'll explore what it means to be a sensate first, and then we'll look at an ascetic. As Pastor Brent has said before, all of us have elements of each of these pathways in each of us. And some of them will sort of cross over with one another. And although they may appear to be polar opposites of one another, I think that sensates and ascetics spend a lot of time in the same space with one another. Now, you may have guessed from the word sensate that a sensate engages God using the five physical senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. And if you are a sensate, you experience great delight when each of your senses are fully engaged. As Gary says in his book, sensate Christians want to be lost in the awe, beauty, and splendor of God. They are drawn particularly to the liturgical, the majestic, the grand. When these Christians worship They want to be filled with sights, sounds, and smells that overwhelm them. Incense, intricate architecture, classical music, and formal language send their hearts soaring. These Christians delight in sensuous onslaught. I like how he put that. The five senses are God's most effective inroads to their hearts. If you are a sensate, you thoroughly enjoy things like museums and concerts, visiting the Sistine Chapel, or gazing at a work of art helps you to connect with God. In short, sensates are drawn to the dramatic. Three years ago, my wife and I, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary And we decided to celebrate, we were going to take a trip to New York City. I mean, talk about Sensate Central, right? Just overwhelming everywhere. (laughs) And we spent three or four days there, and we were just sort of took in all the sights of New York. It was a wonderful trip, and probably the most meaningful stop on our trip was when we visited the 9-11 Memorial. Have any of you been there? Is that an amazing place to visit? If you have never been there and you make a trip to New York City, be sure to stop there. It's massive, as you might expect, in the absence of two gigantic skyscrapers. But it was such an incredible experience that deeply touches many of the senses and really captures the profound impacts, impact of the events of that day. Now, we've all experienced times in our lives where we have either gone to a concert or we've witnessed a powerful thunderstorm or visited a museum like the 9-11 Memorial, and you walk away using adjectives like majestic, awe-inspiring, grandeur, splendid. All of these are words that resonate with the sensate. 
Sensates appreciate how God works on a grand scale. They enjoy the bigness of the stories of the scriptures. God brings about a massive cataclysmic flood that wipes out every living creature on earth. Moses parts the Red Sea using just his staff. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into a fiery furnace only to be miraculously saved by an angel. Jonah, as he runs away from God, he runs right into the gaping mouth of a large fish. Grand stories that illustrate a grand God. This is stuff that sensates love. As a sensate, you experience something that causes you to feel a profound connection to God. I've mentioned before when I spoke here several times that Henry Nouwen is my all-time favorite author. Nouwen is a sensate. And you may have guessed that because I'm speaking on this topic that I have some strong sensate leanings also, as I mentioned earlier. The first book that I read of Nowans was the book titled The Return of the Prodigal Son. Anybody read that? If you haven't read that, put that on your must-read list before the year is out. The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a fascinating book that the sensates among us, you would thoroughly enjoy it. Nowan, he was a Catholic priest. He died probably about 20 years ago. But he wrote a lot on spirituality and spiritual disciplines. He was a deep thinker. He spoke about one episode in his life that led him to leave a prestigious Ivy League school that he was teaching at. And at this particular uh, point in Nowen's life and in his career, he found himself just simply exhausted by his schedule, exhausted by his teaching responsibilities, and he was just at the end of his rope. He ended up leaving that Ivy League school where he had been teaching for many years, and he went to work for a place that took care of mentally disabled adults. It was at this point in his life that he came across a reproduction of Rembrandt's famous painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. There was something about this painting that completely changed his life forever. He said it was the colors in the palette, it was the expression on the father's face, the father's warm embrace of his son, the shoeless son, the scornful look of the older brother who's hiding in the shadows. And as Nowen gazed at the painting, he found himself simply awestruck and carried away. This is what happens with sensates. They are deeply moved by what they see, by what they experience. In fact, Nowen, <laughs> he was so moved by this painting that he decided he wanted to go and see the original. So he traveled all the way to St. Petersburg, Russia, and went to the Hermitage Museum. 
And for three days, he literally sat down directly in front of that painting. That's another thing that sensates do. When they are overwhelmed, in awe by something, they will sit and ponder and contemplate, just sort of taking it all in. It was in front of this Rembrandt painting that God gave him a new direction for his career and urged him to leave what he was doing in academia to go and care for the mentally disabled. And what Nowen found is that whereas the intellectual likes to go out uh, uh, to the woods uh, or, or get into books, the naturalist likes to go out into the woods, he found God in a museum in front of a painting. He found that when his senses were engaged, God became clear to him in new and refreshing ways. Inspired by Nowen, I too have recently done the same thing with a Rembrandt painting. I was so moved by, by his painting, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, that I decided to write a book about my personal reflections on the painting. And the, paint, the book is titled, Christ in the Storm, Keeping Faith in the Face of the Unknown. And to me, this painting embodies the power of God. Rembrandt, he was inspired to paint this painting based on the passage out of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, where we read this. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. A sensate looking at this painting is fully immersed in the scene. He or she can hear the thunder. They can see the lightning. They can feel the power of the wind and the waves. Are any of you with me on this? Okay, okay. The passage continues. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Going from the chaotic to the calm leads me to believe that Jesus was a sensate. And I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. You could say that Jesus embodied all nine of these pathways to God, and for sure he did. But I think if Jesus were to pick just one, he would pick sensate. Because as this chaotic scene on the lake illustrates, is that Jesus had a flair for the dramatic. We see it time and time again in the scriptures. Examples where Jesus used the senses as a means for the miraculous or to illustrate spiritual truths. 
Jesus used spit to give sight to a blind man. He put his fingers into the ears of a deaf man so he could hear again. He touched the sores of a leper. In a dramatic scene, amongst a crowd of angry men, a woman is caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, who forgives her while revealing the hardened hearts of those in the crowd. In a crowded house, he heals a man whose buddies had lowered him through a hole in the roof. He healed him by forgiving him of his sins. Jesus' first miracle was where? Was doing what? He turned water into wine. He took the ordinary and turned it into the extraordinary. And he did it at the grandest of all human experiences, a wedding. A setting where there is no shortage of sights and sounds and smells and things that you can taste and touch. Each of these scenes resonate deeply with sensates. And of, of course, it's, it's no accident that by way of communion, God has created a way for you and I to stay connected to Christ in such a way that engages the senses. We feel the texture of and when, when we break the bread. We smell and we taste the wine. We hear the liturgy as we partake in the elements. It's sensate heaven. So that's the sensate. Any of you identify with sensate? Being a sensate? Okay, okay. Now let's turn our attention to the ascetic. If there is a line to describe ascetics, it would read, just let me be alone. <laughs> how, many, how many of you are already, I can deal with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just let me be alone. Gary Thomas, he says, while sensate Christians are drawn to God through their senses, ascetic Christians are often distracted by their senses. So they will try to shut them out. Asceticism is intended to remove distractions between the believer and God. The early ascetics, they used John the Baptist as an example for their austere practices. Again, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, we read this. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to, to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
this description of John is very similar to the description of another prophet. You remember who that is? The prophet Elijah. Elijah was described as having had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. So there's a couple of interesting points to make in this passage about John that relate to asceticism. The first is that it says John was preaching out in the wilderness. Of course, this implies that he was set apart from the rest of society. Secondly, he carries a prophetic voice as he, as he proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. And then thirdly, this passage describes what he wore and what he ate. And this is one of the few passages in the entire New Testament that describes what people wore. Some of the earliest known ascetics, the desert fathers, the desert mothers, took their asceticism to extremes. They did so, uh, some of them lived in trees. Some of them, <laughs> they, they lived out in the desert. Or they even would sew themselves into the hides of animals. One of the most famous of the early ascetics was a guy whose name was Simeon the Stylite, who for 35 years lived atop a small platform that was about 10 feet high and was only about 3 feet by 3 feet square. He lived on that platform for 35 years. Other well-known ascetics were Athanasius, John Chrysostom, Origen of Alexandria. By the way, if you ever want to read some very challenging reading, read Origen. It will, it will try you for sure. Uh, Synclesia, a female of Alexandria, was also an early ascetic. These and other ascetics removed themselves from society as a sign of their devotion to God. And if you are an ascetic, see if any of these statements resonate with you. You feel closest to God when you are alone, and there's nothing to distract you from focusing on his presence. You would describe your faith as more internal than external. The words silence, solitude, and discipline are words that are very appealing to the ascetic. I am naturally an introvert, so being an ascetic is right up my alley. Other traits that are part of the ascetic life are fasting. Now, usually fasting, when we think of fasting, we think of abstaining from food, but fasting can uh, mean abstaining from other things, such as watching TV or giving up chocolate or maybe your favorite soft drink. Many Christians around the world, they will fast during the season of Lent. Obedience is another trait that ascetics practice as a way to bring honor to God. It's a way of humbly putting oneself under the authority of someone else. Simple living 
kind of only going with the necessities in life. And probably the best modern day example of this would be the Amish. Uh, people who, who uh, do away with the modern conveniences of life, such as automobiles or electricity, as a way of showing their devotion to God. Ascetics, they also practice kindness and giving of their time and their resources. Of course, Christ himself practiced ascetic living. Responding to a student who said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus, even he, he didn't have a home and he had no real earthly belongings. In fact, he lived the life of denying the flesh. But a huge part of Jesus living an ascetic life was his practice of solitude. We read from the book of Mark where he says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Then this is just one of several examples in the scriptures where that show that Jesus would remove himself from people to go be alone and commune with God. Jesus would often separate himself to prepare for a major task, such as when he was led into the desert to be tempted by Satan, or when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his crucifixion. He would often separate from others so as to recharge after hard work. He also did this as a means of working through grief. When Jesus heard about uh, his cousin, John the Baptist, being beheaded, Jesus left everyone, went off by himself to pray. And I think he did so as a way of processing his grief. So Jesus provides us all with a good example of what it means to practice asceticism, to remove ourselves and commune with God. Charles Spurgeon, he says, there are times when solitude is better than society and silence is wiser than speech. We should be better Christians if we were more alone waiting upon God and gathering through meditation on his word, spiritual strength for labor in his service. From his book, again, Gary Thomas, he says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Solitude begins with a time and a place for God and him alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that he is actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding, we need to set aside time and a space to give him our undivided attention. Ever since I've been on staff here at Timberline, I, I would, every October, I would take our Timber Kids staff and so any volunteers that would want to go, uh, we would travel up to uh, 
the Abbey of St. Walburga. Have any of you been up there? Uh, yeah, we would, we would travel up there and we would just spend a day in solitude. Uh, solitude with the nuns and with God. Uh, we would do that every single year and it's very, very meaningful. So we know that ascetic living is good for us, but how do we do this? How do we practice ascetic living in our fast-paced world? Well, for starters, you have to be deliberate. You have to be deliberate in setting aside time to spend with God. That might mean getting up before the rest of your household is up or staying up later after everyone else has gone to bed. Or it's putting on your calendar a half day to spend in a park or by a river or wherever you can best connect with God in quiet. Carrie Stewart, she's our missions pastor here at Timberline. She has on her calendar one day a month where she does this. She goes off and practices solitude. And the thing about this particular practice is you have to be diligent in guarding and protecting that time because it's really easy to get caught up in the tyranny of the urgent, isn't it? As you embrace your time of solitude, you will learn what another favorite author of mine, Ken Geyer, what he says. He says, we're starved for a life that not only senses the sacred in the world around us, but savors it. The reflective life is a life that is attentive, receptive, and responsive to what God is doing in us and around us. So, in both sensate and ascetic fashion, we're going to come to the communion table. And it's at this table that we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. It's here that we try to identify with Christ in his suffering. As we remember the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed.